All right, we are, we are going to, again, we're just going to close out Advent, or start Advent, close out the names of God. The two uh, work well together. Uh, so if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, if you could turn there, we're going to read verses 18 through 25, the end of the chapter. So if you would, find that, and then stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Starting at verse 18, the word says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time to just spend in it this morning. And Father, I pray that as your word is taught, that we would uh, look to you, that we would see only you, and that we would bring glory and honor to your name. Father, we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this name, there, there are two names mentioned. We're only going to talk about the second one, but I think that uh, they are significant enough that we want to mention both of them. I think there's a reason why they're both in here. Uh, but the name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it's mentioned three times in Scripture, uh, this being one of them, which is actually quoted from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And the only other time in Scripture that uh, Emmanuel is used is in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. So both times in Isaiah, and one time quoted again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And in Matthew, we're told the exact definition. Uh, it means God with us. God with us. I spent a lot of time just contemplating that this morning, or this week, just thinking about what does that mean, God with us? And that is a deep thing. If you can just pause and think over that, chew on that for a while, um, there is so much in that. But I think we have some context here in Matthew chapter 1 that I want us to look at because we're told in chapter 1 in verses uh, uh, what 21 and 23, that he will be called two different things. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, just two verses later, it says, uh, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I find it uh, fascinating that both of these are mentioned here at the introduction of Jesus. We have the New Testament rolling over from the Old Testament, and the very first chapter, we have the introduction of who this Jesus is, and we're told um, two names. And I think that there are 
two reasons for it. One is the first name states his purpose, and the second, his rationale. So the first name, we're told Jesus, which is Yeshua. Um, We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it just means the Lord saves. And we're told right there in the verse, um, he shall save his people from their sins. So we have his purpose. Why is he coming? He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's his purpose for coming. But second, we see a rationale. It says, Emmanuel, God with us. His rationale, why did Jesus come? We know that he came to save his people from their sins. That's the the purpose of it. But why? To be with us. To be with his people. I want you to, 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 to meditate upon that all morning. To think about that, the reality of that is so profound. Understand, He chose this. God with us. He wasn't forced to do it. He chose this. God chose this. He chose to come. He didn't need to. There was never any requirement upon God to come. It was His choice to come. His purpose was to be with His people. He chose it. And in fact, if He didn't come... He would have been perfectly glorified in sending every single human to hell. Think about that. His glory would have been impacted in zero degrees if He would have never came. It would not have impacted who He was or His right in doing it. But He chose this. Let that sink in. He chose this. God with us. We see his, his purpose to save his people from their sins and his rationale because he wanted to be with his people. So what is the context and what does all this mean as we meditate upon this? I think as I thought about it, as I thought through it this week, three concepts, three words came to my mind when I think of Emmanuel that I would encourage you to think of as well. What does it mean when we say God with us? The first thing I think of is a relationship. God with us. I, uh, over the course of my life, I have found that it is a lot easier to be with people versus being alone. In fact, I saw uh, my brother likes this, uh, uh, this TV show that they do. It, I don't remember what it's called. I think it's called Alone. But it's this like uh, reality thing where they send people off into the wilderness, into the woods somewhere, and they are survivalist experts. And the catch is that they have zero interaction with people. They film their own stuff. They're by themselves. And most people go insane after like a week. And these are survival experts who cannot be out there because they are alone. That's what drives them crazy. They don't, go, they don't quit because they're hungry. They don't quit because they don't have shelter. They quit because they're alone. They're lonely. There's a reality. The human heart does not ever desire to be alone. We desire to be with people. We desire social interaction. And I've thought about that. And and there are times where I do well on my own, but that time is always limited because I like to be with people. And when I hear God with us, I think of He loves His people. He loves His people. God with us. He wants to be with His people. He loves His people so much that He chose this, that He came. And it gets me to think about this relationship, and I think of a couple things. Number one, I think of how it was born, right? Creation. 
Mankind was made. In, in Genesis chapter 1, we can read all about it. In creation, in creation, the prize of creation, what God treasured the most was what He created last. Man, His people. He saved the best for last. And it wasn't with any other part of creation that He fellowshiped, but with man. He spent His time. It talks about Him being in the cool of the day, walking with Adam and Eve. He spent His fellowship with man, not with the animals. I'm sure He cared for them, but it was with man that He desired to be. It was with mankind that He treasured. Over and over again, we talk about it. He, he looked at man. He said, I love you so much. I want you to take care of my creation. I want you to rule over it. I want you to have possession of it. God's portion, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, what God wants out of all of this, out of everything that has ever been made, God's portion is His people. Over and over again, we can read in Scripture the relationship born out of His creation. He fellowshiped with man. When I think of the relationship, I think not just to how it was born, but I think of how it was broken. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 starts to get into this idea of what happened. And you read about the fall of man. And you look through it and, and, and the brokenness that came as, as God came to fellowship with man. And God in His foreknowledge must have known this would happen, but it says that He walked in, in the cool of the day. He was looking for Adam and Adam's hiding. Broken relationship. And it was such a broken thing that it caused separation in such a way that, that it says that God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and then put a guard up that they could never enter into it. And what a, what a picture of the Gospel from day one to, to the coming of Christ and His, his death and resurrection that, that this whole concept is about His plan of redemption and that at the fall there was a separation, eternal separation, that God, can you imagine the heartbreak of God? He loved His creation, particularly His people, and He wants to be with them. And now He says, I can't be with you. And He's going to put a guard up so you can't even come. How it was born, how it was broken. But the hard part in all of this is you read through Genesis and through the rest of the books of the Bible is how it was bad. I mean, think about it. Genesis chapter 1, pride and glory. You have the incredible uh, perfection of His creation. It all comes crashing down. Consequence laid out in Genesis chapter 3. And just three short chapters later, Genesis chapter 6 rolls around and God is so angry, He's ready to wipe out all of His creation. Think about that. From fellowshipping in a garden, from walking and spending time in, in conversation with humanity, just a short time later, God says, I'm done with this. I'm going to wipe it all out. Don't let that dramatic change slip your mind and how important this is going to play out as we get into the end of this message. Fellowship so broken that man could not even see the face of God and live, we're told in Exodus chapter 33. Mankind had become a stench in the nostrils of God in Isaiah chapter 65. 
The efforts of humanity are viewed as filthy rags, that there is none righteous, there is nothing good that mankind has to offer. It is so putrid in the presence of God that he cannot even bear to be around it. God describes His people later on, and specifically talking about uh, Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16. He gives this beautiful picture of how he's, He's wandering through the field, and He finds this baby naked, just born in its own blood, and He picks it up, and He cherishes that baby. He cleans that baby. He clothes that baby. He adorns it with jewels and makes it beautiful. And the baby begins a a, a young uh, woman, And it begins to look upon herself in such a way that she no longer sees a need for God. And over and over again in that chapter, in Ezekiel chapter 16, incredible chapter, God says that she plays the harlot and prostitutes herself. The picture of mankind in Ezekiel 16.15, she played the harlot. 16.16, she played the harlot. 16.26, she plays the harlot. 16.28, she plays the harlot. This is mankind. That God has treasured His possession, that He wants to fellowship, but they have adulterated themselves, filling themselves with sin and vileness that cannot even be in the presence of God. We're told later on that it over and over again, read Judges, and you'll find that the people of God again and again arouse the anger of the Lord. And finally, Paul in Romans chapter 3 describes humanity in an unpleasant way. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is none that does good. There is no, not one who seeks after God. And he closes that section out by saying, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I think of God with us, I think of a relationship, and I think of a relationship that was broken. And so God says, this is not what I want. And since mankind can't do it, I will come. I will come. He wants to be with His people because He loves them. And I want us to think about that, and I want us to think that if God with us, if we consider that in spite of the wretchedness of sinful humanity, if that can't convince God to stay away, there is nothing in your life that is so vile that God doesn't want you. When I think of God with us, I think of a a, a father who desires to be with his children. I think of one who says, I don't care what you have done. I want to be with you. I will make the effort. Because so many times I've met too many people that I've shared the gospel with, and the response is, well, I am so bad. If I walked into the doors of a church, lightning would strike the church. No, no, no. We are all bad. We're all in the same category. And Emmanuel says, God with us, I desire to be with my people. I will do what it takes because I know you cannot. God with us screams a relationship. And there is none that, desire, or that, that he doesn't desire to have a relationship with. Over and over again, we read that God's desire is that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It screams a relationship. Second thing is that it tells us a, a response. Right? God with us, it, it, it tells us a response. And the response is, He came for His people. 
God with us. He didn't sit, so the Greeks had a view of the gods that they, that they would quote in, in, in uh, the, the, the Trojan War, uh, uh, the, the Iliad, I'm trying to think of the name of the book. Um, the, one of the Greek heroes describes the gods as being afar off, watching as humanity goes and does its thing, and they just watch in amusement. That's not the view that we should have of God. That He doesn't just sit back and watch as entertainment what humanity does. No, we can read this, God with us, and know, first of all, the initiation. He initiated it. He came because His people could not save themselves. He loved first, 1 John 4.10. We know love because He first loved us. God initiates it. God is the one who came. God is the one who responded, not us. In fact, we're told by Paul, as we already read in Romans chapter 3, that no one seeks after God. God is the one who initiates it. What an incredible thing. When we read God with us, we should think of His response. His response was, I'm going to come for you. It was an investment, too. His coming would be expensive. If we would pause and think about what it meant for God to come to humanity, it was an investment in pain, that He had to become flesh and blood and experience pain. He had emotional pain, uh, the forsaking of the Father, which none of us have ever experienced, nor will we ever experience in this lifetime. That Jesus, while on the cross, He declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken us when the Father turned His back? Emotional pain that Jesus, and we read this with our children last night, that Jesus came and He came to His own and His own received Him not. I know what it's like to be rejected by my friends, but never to be rejected by my own creation. I'll never experience that. To come to people that you were coming to minister to, to save them from a sin that they knew that they, didn't, that they maybe didn't understand that they had, but that they could never accomplish on their own. You came solely for that purpose for them, and then they would turn and say, no, in fact, we hate you and we will crucify you. That's the investment that Jesus made in coming. Persecution and death. Suffering on a cross. Incredibly, subjection to his own creation. Think about that. The creator saying, you know what, I'm going to humble myself and become like a man. The very creation that I made, I will be put myself under. Paul describes this incredible humiliation in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about it. And he says that, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, who... Although he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation, but humbled himself and became like a servant, a servant even unto death on the cross. That's an incredible investment. Subjection to his creation, to leave his throne, a glorious place, to step down from that and to come and step into humanity. Incredible investment. It's his response. And what does this response imply? I think there are some incredible implications as well. God with us, that He came, that He responded, it tells me that His solution to the broken relationship was Himself. Right? 
That his solution for this broken relationship was himself. As we looked several weeks ago at Jehovah uh, Jireh, the one who provides, the Lord himself will provide. And we read this story of Abraham and, and you get a glimpse into the future, as I'm sure Abraham did. And, and who knows what Abraham perceived, but we know that Jesus would say that Abraham saw my day coming and he rejoiced. And, and so he must have had some sort of connection there that he realized he was going to offer his own son and the Lord provided a lamb. And John the Baptist must have understood because when he sees Jesus walking in front of him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His solution to the broken relationship because he wants it healed was himself. Another implication is his sacrifice for us. Listen to this. God with us. He came Choosing to come, he knew full well what it would cost. Know this, the sacrifice he was willing to make for us was worth it to him. That his sacrifice, the death on a cross, the pain and suffering through the vileness of the persecution and the torture, and the, the, let alone the, the life of 30-some years in, in facing temptation and hunger and thirsting and all these things was worth it to Him for you. Another implication, His love is immense and it is intense. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, God demonstrates His love for us. He died for us. Over and over again. Another implication of this response is His willingness for us is unmeasured. Brothers and sisters, God with us tells us that His willingness for you is unmeasurable. Paul alludes to this when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, if He didn't even hold back His own Son, how much more will He give to you and me? When we read God with us, Emmanuel, when we think of that name, I want us to think of not just a relationship that God desires to have with you, but I want you to think of a response that when God was sitting in His glorious realm and He said, my people need me to come and save them because they will never do what He said, I will go without hesitation. God with us means that He came. And that He was willing to come because He wanted to come, because He loves. And know this, God is not idle. He does not just sit and watch. God with us was not something we deserved either. Nor was it something that we earned through what we do. God does not act thankfully based on our merit, but upon His grace. Some of you here today may be tempted to think that the chaos in your life right now is because God is desiring to punish you. Let me tell you, there are consequences for sin. But it is not God's desire to punish you. God's desire is to die for you. God loves in such an incredible way. God's response is I am with you. 
in the chaos, in whatever it is. God with us screams a relationship. God with us shows us a response. But the third thing is, God with us should remind us of a concept of redemption. A redemption. He bought back his people. That was his purpose. When we think of God with us, we can remind ourselves a redemption that he bought back his people. Because God with us, we have a couple of things. Number one, we have his partnership. Do you realize that God with us means that we have a partner in this life? One who has experience. God with us means that He became flesh and blood. If you want uh, some, some encouraging reading as you think through the Advent season, I encourage you to go to Hebrews. Hebrews is an incredible book filled with incredible truths about what this coming of Christ is all about. It brings the Old Testament in to the New Testament and it ties it all together in a pretty bow and it declares some truths that should restore the confidence in our faith and hope. In Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, meaning Jesus Himself, likewise partook of the same thing, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, we have a partner in Jesus Christ who says, I have been there, I have done that, I lived the flesh and blood. I was not just some far distant being who cares nor knows what you are experiencing. But I am your partner in this life that I can say, I have been there, I know what you're going through and I can help you through it. Flesh and blood. Temptation and victory. Flip two chapters over. Chapter 14. 4 of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Temptation and victory. And again, one more chapter, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Not only has he gone through the, the temptation and had victory, not only has he experienced flesh and blood, he has experienced suffering and obedience. So when we find it hard to obey the commands of God's word, we can look to Jesus and he isn't just God who is incapable of going through the suffering, but he says, I am your partner and I can help you with this. If we would just turn to him.
God with us means He has come. And He has brought back His people. And He offers His partnership, not just His partnership, but His presence. You notice what it says? It says God with us. That's present tense. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we say, God was with us. But He is with us now. And He offers His presence. God with us. Fellowship promised and restored over and over again. God didn't stop, though, with just dwelling with us. God dwells in us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is His temple, that He resides not just with you, but in you. He promises His presence that no matter where you go, He is there because He is in you. God with us, God in us. And redemption also tells us His power. He works for us. God came to dwell in us to empower us. And so it's not just God with us and God in us, but God through us. What an incredible thing that when we walk through this life and we walk through and struggle and various things, we can say, I have a partner who understands, who knows, who can sympathize with us that the writer of Hebrews declares, we don't have a high priest who is unable to know what's going on, but one who has experienced everything just as we are. And he it is that dwells within me. And now because he dwells in me, Paul declares that I live, yet not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And we can walk through this life and we can live in a holy and godly way because He lives through us. And we can love people that irritate the snot out of us, who drive us crazy. And we can love them because Jesus loves me and has poured His Spirit into me in such a way that I live not myself but Him in me and empowers me, God with us. And I can forgive that person who is burn me over and over again. I can forgive that person who abused me. I can forgive that person who abandoned me. I can forgive them because God lives in me. And it is not me who is doing it, but God who lives through me. God with us speaks of redemption that should scream to the nations that He is able and has done, and He desires to be with me. And brothers and sisters, know this, it is a perfect redemption. It was a redemption of the past, it is a redemption of the present, and it is a redemption of the future. And it is never, never unable to redeem, to cover over sin, to walk through. So when we hear God with us, the the three concepts or three words that come to my mind are a relationship, that He desires a relationship with His people, that He's a relational, that He has made us in His image, that we are relational, and He desires to have a relationship. But as we look through the Word, we read the truth of the Gospel, that mankind has separated, and that must have broke His heart. And then I think of a response when I hear God with us. I think of God saying, I will go. And He came and He redeemed. And that is the third thing I think of is a redemption, a perfect redemption that He has come and therefore He is able to offer His partnership with me. He is able to offer His presence and He is able to offer His power. 
What an incredible thing. So what does God with us mean now as we walk in daily life? First and foremost, as we already know, it means He came to save His people from their sin. That He came to save His people from their sin. And there are people all across this world that every Christmas they hear this story about Jesus coming and they read it sometimes or sometimes they hear about it from someone and they've never grasped this truth. First and foremost, God with us means He came to save His people from their sin. And we ought to be proclaiming that to the nations. If there's anyone here today that does not recognize this or does not believe this, know this, that today is a day of salvation, that if you come unto Him and call out, He will in no wise cast you out. He will say, come unto Me, and I will give you rest. It means instead of fear, we walk in confidence. God with us. If God be for us, who can be against me? Not just for me, but in me. God with us. It means instead of doubt, believe with boldness. That God said, I want you, I will come for you, and I will buy you for myself. And what are we to fear? What have we to doubt? It means instead of striving with efforts, rest in your Father's arms. So many of us are like Martha, running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to do the good works and the good deeds, that trying to impress a Father who says, I've already loved you, and I don't need any of your works to prove my love. It's not that He doesn't want us to do things for Him, but some of us, we have missed the reality that He's here and He's in our presence right now. And He wants you to just rest in Him and in His loving arms. And we're trying to earn that. Trying to earn that through programs, through things that we're constantly doing and trying to say, and I remember before I went on sabbatical that this was my mindset. And, and when everything was taken away and I had nothing left, I went into a dark depression and I turned to God and I said, now I have nothing to give you and I am worthless. And God said, good, you finally get it. Because I love you in spite of what you do. And for some of us, we need to hear that. And we need to hear it over and over again that your work will never earn the love of God. This doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I'll come home and I'm ready to run into the house and see my, my kids and, and I walk in and they're coloring or something or reading a book and they never get up and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm home. I spent all day gone. It doesn't mean they don't love me. I have expectations I should probably explain to them, like maybe call before I, I'm five minutes out, but I feel like so many of us, we're He's there. He's in our presence right now. And He's loving us. And we're ignoring Him because we're trying to read. or We're trying to color. or We're trying to do this or that. And He's saying, I'm here right now with you. Believe that His desire is to be with you. His end goal, we know it. We can read the end of the book. What an incredible thing. In Revelations chapter 21, listen to this. 
Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 21, God declares, I heard the voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. His desire, the end goal is I will make my dwelling place with man forever. Can you grasp that God with us means he wants you? He wants you so much that he was willing to offer his life to purchase, to restore. He wants you. He wants us. The worship team is going to come up here. And, and when we talk about communion, it's about fellowship. It's about fellowship with the Father. It's about a reminder that Jesus Christ died that we might have fellowship with God. So in Middle Eastern times, they would stress the importance of hospitality and gathering together. And they would celebrate things like the Passover as a reminder of what God has done and to, to set their minds right that God desires fellowship with His people. And so when we celebrate communion, and what an incredible time when we talk about the anticipation of Jesus coming. You know, we, we, we throw out the term the waiting room here, and, and all we're wanting us to think about is what are we doing while we're in that room waiting? Room, not just a, a place, but a time. A span as Jesus has come and He has bought back His people. And we celebrate that in the, the reminder of what Jesus has done for us and dying on a cross and saying, I will restore a relationship that you could never have restored. And so we celebrate and Paul talks about it. And Jesus says that as long as you do this, you do remember my death. You remember my actions. You remember that I bought you back. And so now that we have that time and we reflect upon it, we say, what are we doing in the waiting? He has come. He dwells with us. And what are we going to do as we anticipate His return? I, for one, want to wait by rejoicing in what He has done and by proclaiming that truth to a world that does not know Him. And so we celebrate, and what a wonderful thing to celebrate. And Paul reminds us, this was his death for your sins. Take some time, examine your heart, look through it, and remind yourself of the sin that you have committed, that you might confess it to him and be done with it. Because he has declared, I have taken your sins and I have cast them as far as the east is from the west. I have bought you back, and by my blood a perfect atonement is made that you will never be held accountable for that sin. And that's why we celebrate. So as families, I want us to take some time to examine our hearts, to pray and have communion with Him, and then celebrate. Because He broke His body and He poured out His blood for us. And we might declare the salvation of our Savior.